We're looking at Romans together, and if you'd like to find Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, and we'll come in at verse 28, Romans 2 verse 28. A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. Now, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. Circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Not sure how many weeks it is now that we have been in Romans. It's a good few. If you're familiar with this book, with this letter that Paul is writing, you'll know that you really kind of get into the the main theme of it in chapter 3 and verse 21 really is where the story really begins. And we've taken a number of weeks and here we are at the end of chapter 2, just starting into chapter 3 and how many more weeks there'll be before we get to verse 21, I cannot predict Why does Paul go through all of this stuff before he gets to the substance of what he really wants to get to? Remember that he's writing to people he's not met yet. He's hoping to visit them. This is a letter he sends on ahead of his visit to introduce himself. And he is talking about his gospel. He's talking about the message that he loves to preach He will preach it when he gets there, but he wants to prepare them in advance, and he's just setting out what he believes. Why chapters 1 and 2 and the first half of chapter 3? I don't know the men here particularly, I guess this will relate to, although there might be some fearsome women to whom it does apply. Have you ever cut a tree down? No. So I shouldn't be sexist. Maybe there are women here who wield an axe and fell trees. But there's a tree you want to cut down. Before you can get to it, often there's other stuff around it. And your aim is to go for that tree. But to get to it, you've got to cut all this stuff down to get a clear swing at the tree. And so a lot of time can be spent cutting all the stuff and you clear all of that out of the way, then you can get to what you wanted to get to. And in a way, that's what Paul is doing here. There's other stuff that needs to be dealt with. And it's important that it's dealt with. It's not trivial. Things that actually, if they're not dealt with, will hinder understanding of what he really wants to say. Just as all the undergrowth around the tree will hinder getting to it unless you clear it out of the way. There's stuff he needs to deal with. It's ever so important that we understand the gospel. We understand what it is and what it isn't. And Paul is dealing with some of those issues. Last week he was looking at this whole matter of just appearances. The 
kind of externals of appearances and activities. Just, and, and many people think commitment is a matter of attending meetings. Commitment is a matter of kind of looking good or whatever. And Paul's saying, no, it's a matter of the heart. You can do all of those things, but if your heart isn't in it, then what's the point? If you look at Newsbyte, you'll know that tomorrow is my wife's birthday. Not just announcing that, but I'm just... Now, I could think, if, if, if it was just a matter... If, 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 if I didn't... If you don't understand this thing about heart, I could say, ah, oh, 20th of July, I ought to buy her a present. I ought to think about what would she want. Oh, dear, and I'm so busy... When am I going to get time to go to the shops? Oh, dear. So I suppose I better do it. Wouldn't it be horrible? Wouldn't it be horrible if I thought like that? The, the opposite of thinking like that is to say, oh, well, I won't get her a present then. No, the opposite of thinking like that is to say, I love her. I have got you a present. <laughs> I love her, and therefore, of course, I will do it. It's not a matter... And, and commitment to Christ isn't a matter of I ought to, I must, I'm expected to. Oh, and I'm so busy. I've got so many claims on my time and it's this. Oh, it's not a matter of that. It's I love him. I want to and therefore I will. The, the, it can look the same. There's still the same attendance at things and so on. But it's not I must attend. I love. Therefore, of course, it follows. So Paul is dealing with this. It's important we understand it. It's important we understand that just keeping up appearances and just going through the motions and ticking all the boxes, that doesn't make you good enough for God. It's a matter of heart, circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. We need to see religion isn't enough. And so having demolished all of that, he's cut the, all that undergrowth down, he then raises a question at the start of chapter 3. He said, just being a Jew isn't enough. Just getting circumcised isn't enough. Well, that raises a question. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? He's spoken about a people who have been chosen by God. He's spoken about a people who have got huge privileges. And then he says, but of course they still need to be saved. They still need a savior. Well, not much of a privilege then. What's the point of all of that if they still need to be saved? That's the issue that he's dealing with. And his answer is, what, what value is there? Much in every way. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. The way he says that, first of all, you expect he's going to proceed with a list. And secondly, thirdly, there's no second and third. It's like he started a list and just got so enthusiastic about this one, he forgot the rest. If there had been a list, this would have been top of the list. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. In chapter 9, he actually does give a list of their great privileges. Chapter 9, verse 4, he says, Theirs is the adoption 
as sons. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. There's are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. Many privileges, but first, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. They still need to be saved. But what a privilege for them. And this is their greatest privilege that they've been entrusted with the very words, the oracles, the, the words that God actually spoke. And that's the, the thrust of that, the, the very words of God, the words that came from his mouth, not someone's recollection of what God said, not a paraphrase of what God said, not a summary of what God said, but his actual words. Their greatest privilege, he's saying, is that God spoke to them. They had God's actual words. And of course, those actual words are our Old Testament. God speaking to them. And that is a unique privilege. That separated them out from every other nation. They were the only ones who had actually heard God. Back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4, the uniqueness of this privilege is spoken about, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 8. God says, what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Be careful. Watch yourselves closely so that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. What other nation is saying is so great as to have these laws? God speaking to his people. Again, in one of the Psalms, Psalm 147, the same thing is highlighted. Psalm 147 and verse 19 the psalmist says, he has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Of course, many nations have got religions. Many re nations have got systems of belief and, and so on. It can be very devout in their way. But no other nation had had God speak to them. And God has spoken, and his word, is, as I say, is our Old Testament, and it's a unique privilege given to them. And not just given to them, but entrusted. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. The idea there, isn't it, is of something of great value being carefully handed over to someone and with this command, look after it. Look after it, entrusted with the very word of God, placed into their care to be honored, to be preserved, to be valued, entrusted with the very word of God. Now, of course, we've already seen externals, appearances are not enough. And so what could happen and what did happen is that they honored, I mean, it's a bit like if I, if I say, how do I honor God's Word, the Bible. Well, I would treat it with very great respect. You know, once I was preaching in a church, and afterwards, uh, one of the members of the congregation came up to me and said, uh, do you mind if I say something to you? I said, no, in fact, you are doing. Uh, anyway, I said, uh, fine. He said, 
he said, there's something I, I need to rebuke you about. Right, okay. What? He said, the way you dishonored God's word. What a thing to say. I've just been preaching, and someone comes to me and says, you have dishonored God's word. I'm very concerned now. Why? How? You put your Bible on the ground. <laughs> oh, right. Um, is that dishonoring? That's going for the appearances. The Jews, I went to a meeting in this building when it was a synagogue, and there was a point in the meeting when they opened the curtains there, not those curtains, there were different curtains, but behind those curtains, the scrolls. And there was a point in the meeting when every male head had to be covered, a holy moment, the curtain is parted, and they bring out the scrolls, honoring God's word, except a lot of people were talking, talking about all sorts of things, actually, covering their heads, honoring the appearances. What does it mean to honor God's word? To do it, to love it, to believe it. doesn't matter what you do with the book, but what it's, what, what's in the book, it's the words that we read it. We, it's in, God has entrusted his word. Hasn't done this for any other nation. What privileges did God's people, the Jews, have? First of all, God spoke to them. And not just spoke to them, he entrusted his word to them for them to use it, for them to honor it, for them to tell others about it. A wonderful, wonderful privilege. And Paul is not just there, he speaks about the Jews, but that's his own idea as well. That's, that's his own view of the scriptures. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, He says, we, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Entrusted with the gospel. This, I'll just say, once upon, oh, this, this thing is waving all over the place. Uh, it was Pete, I think it was, who mended it some time ago. And what he mended has just fallen off. And uh, I'm going to get seasick here. <clears throat> I will not touch it. It's waving around in the breeze. Um, so Paul has, he doesn't just know the gospel. He says entrusted. Something that he values, that he's going to look after, he's going to safeguard. Indeed, the, the, the greatest disaster, the, uh, the, the prophet Amos speaks about a time that will come when there'll be a famine. He says, not a famine of food, but of the word of God. Amos chapter 8. The greatest disaster is to have this privilege removed. Not having God's word. Because this is how God communicates. God, God doesn't just give us impressions. God has dealt with us with words. Words are our clearest way of communicating. Of course, there are other ways of communicating. Body language and so on. There are those, for example who I gather closely watch my left eyebrow, which I'm told rises and does other things and is apparently very expressive. Um, I'm unaware of that, but people gather all sorts of things from what happens to my eyebrow. Well, are they right or are they wrong? They may get it right. They may, may be. It's just a nervous twitch and it doesn't mean anything at all. 
But words, ah, when someone speaks, you know what they really think, what they really feel. You really get their opinion. God speaks. Doesn't just leave us to get an impression. He has spoken. Words are our most effective way of communicating and God has communicated his word to give us understanding, to encourage us, to to give us hope for things that are ahead, to correct us, to show us what is wrong, what is damaging in our lives, what displeases him. God has spoken. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? What value is there in all of that? Much in every way. First of all, top priority, I've been entrusted with the very words of God. But that then gives rise to a further question, a further problem that Paul envisages someone raising. And he puts it like this. What if some didn't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Now, what's what's he saying here? Well, it's as if he imagined someone saying, okay, they had this great privilege of God's word, but in all honesty, didn't seem to do them much good, did it? Didn't really do anything for them if they still need to be saved. They're still in need of a savior. They're still in sin. They need someone to die in their place. Great privilege. Didn't seem to do anything. Doesn't seem to have really helped. Does it work? If this nation, greatly privileged, is actually no better off, in a sense, than any other nation, they need a savior. Did did it work? What good was it? Can you trust God? What's the value of having God's word? This is an issue that can arise today with what we regard as unfulfilled promises. We see what the Bible says. We see what it promises us. Or we listen to someone prophesying and we hear great things prophesied. Then we don't seem, perhaps, to see it happening. Great privilege to have God speaking. But if it doesn't work, if it doesn't actually change anything, is it such a great privilege? And can you trust God? Does God just say things and nothing happens? Is God faithful? How do we treat what he says? How do we regard it? And clearly, we don't yet see everything that the Bible promises actually happening. There's certainly more promise than there is fulfillment. How do we handle that? Do we say, God isn't faithful, you can't believe him, or what? That's not a new problem, and it's obviously a problem there that Paul is addressing. It's a problem also that Peter, in his second letter, uh, deals with in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. He refers to scoffers who come and they say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died. Um, So Paul doesn't just know the gospel, he says entrusted. Something that he values, that he's going to look after, he's going to safeguard. Indeed, the the greatest disaster, the, uh, the, the prophet Amos speaks about a time that will come when there'll be a famine. He says, not a famine of food, but of the word of God. Amos chapter 8, 
The greatest disaster is to have this privilege removed. Not having God's word. Because this is how God communicates. God God doesn't just give us impressions. God has dealt with us with words. Words are our clearest way of communicating. Of course, there are other ways of communicating, body language and so on. There are those, for example, who I gather closely watch my left eyebrow, which I'm told rises and does other things and is apparently very expressive. Um, I'm unaware of that, but people gather all sorts of things from what happens to my eyebrow. Well, are they right or are they wrong? They may get it right. They may, may be. It's just a nervous twitch and it doesn't mean anything at all. But words, ah, when someone speaks, you know what they really think, what they really feel. You really get their opinion. God speaks. Doesn't just leave us to get an impression. He has spoken. Words are our most effective way of communicating. And God has communicated his word to give us understanding. To encourage us. To to give us hope for things that are ahead. To correct us. To show us what is wrong. What is damaging in our lives. What displeases him. God has spoken. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? What value is there in all of that? Much in every way. First of all, top priority, I've been entrusted with the very words of God. But that then gives rise to a further question, a further problem that Paul envisages someone raising. And he puts it like this. What if some didn't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Now, what's what's he saying here? Well, it's as if he imagined someone saying, okay, they had this great privilege of God's word, but in all honesty, didn't seem to do them much good, did it? Didn't really do anything for them if they still need to be saved. They're still in need of a savior. They're still in sin. They need someone to die in their place. Great privilege didn't seem to do anything doesn't seem to have really helped. Does it work? If this nation, greatly privileged, is actually no better off, in a sense, than any other nation, they need a savior, did did it work? What good was it? Can you trust God? What's the value of having God's word? This is an issue that can arise today with what we regard as unfulfilled promises. We see what the Bible says. We see what it promises us. Or we listen to someone prophesying and we hear great things prophesied. Then we don't seem, perhaps, to see it happening. Great privilege to have God speaking. But if it doesn't work... If it doesn't actually change anything, is it such a great privilege? And can you trust God? Does God just say things and nothing happens? Is God faithful? How do we treat what he says? How do we regard it? And clearly, we don't yet see everything that the Bible promises actually happening. 
there's certainly more promise than there is fulfillment. How do we handle that? Do we say, God isn't faithful, you can't believe him, or what? Now, that's not a new problem, and it's obviously a problem there that Paul is addressing. It's a problem also that Peter, in his second letter, uh, deals with in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. He refers to scoffers who come, and they say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. They say, this promise of a second coming, where is it? Nothing's changing. Got the words don't actually see it happening. Or to put this issue another way, what if some didn't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Are God's promises only as good as God's people? Are God's promises vulnerable to our failure? It's as if Paul is saying... Does their unfaithfulness negate God's faithfulness? In other words, God has made big promises, but because the nation didn't believe, the promises didn't happen. And so it's as if God has promised things and they don't happen because of our unfaithfulness. What if some didn't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Are God's promises all dependent on us coming up with the goods? Well, if so, we are lost. If that is the case, if God's promises depend on our faithfulness, they'll never happen. Because one thing we know about us is we're not very good at being faithful. Not very good at believing God. Never have been. It's the whole story of God's people from start to finish. So if God's promises are totally dependent on us fulfilling, as it were, our part of the bargain, it's not going to work because we invariably mess up. We invariably fail. And if we fail, then do his promises fail? If so... Christianity is, as the critics say, just pie in the sky. Just believing big things that actually never happen in real life. It's a matter of nice things that we're singing about this morning, speaking about, but actually it's all unrelated to real life because those things are dependent on our faithfulness and we can't come up with the goods, we don't come up with the goods. And so we can, if we wish, as it were, amuse ourselves with some wonderful promises, well aware it just ain't going to happen. I mean, for example, John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may give glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Hey, that's wonderful. So we believe it. 
Maybe write it out and put it on the wall or whatever. Thing is, in real life, it doesn't happen. Is that where we are? Is that our faith? Big promises, but it's dependent on our faithfulness. And therefore, we have to learn to live in two worlds. There's the religious world of what we believe and the real world where actually it doesn't happen. And somehow, we have to learn to cope with that. And we have to learn to cope with believing big things and seeing very little. Is that Christianity? Is that the good news that Paul is so enthusiastic about? Is that the good news that propels him on from place to place, desiring to preach, to tell people, wonderful news, pie in the sky, but it's not going to affect real life? What's the point? Paul here is addressing some very important issues. And you see, it's important to clear the undergrowth away. It's important to cut these things out, to come to understanding here. We're actually going to come to the big things that he's going to speak about. If we've got any problems here, if any of us are living in this world of unreality, of double think, where we've got religious truth and real truth, then when we come to the big stuff of what, what Jesus has done for us at the cross, we'll put it into that category. It's unreal. Yeah, I believe it. It doesn't affect real life. Paul's talking here about something that does affect real life. So we've got to understand these things. What about then the massive, massive promises in this wonderful book that God entrusted to his people? All the things he said he was going to do for them, but as Paul says, some didn't have faith. What if some did not have faith? It's a very kind way of putting it. Some, it was most of them. Does their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Does our unfaithfulness negate God's faithfulness? Now look at his response. Not at all. That's a notoriously difficult expression to translate. It's a very emphatic, strong denial of something. One of the translations puts it, not on your life. It's a pretty good translation. It's no, no, no. It's total denial. Does their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not on your life. Let God be true and every man a liar. What's he saying here? Let God be true and every man alive. He said, what if some didn't have faith? So he says, let's take it beyond some not having faith. Let's push it to if no one has faith, if everyone's a liar, everyone is faithless. They say things that they don't fulfill. What if everyone is faithless? Let God be true. If everyone is faithless, God is faithful. His Faithfulness is not conditional on ours. If it were, we're lost. If it were, we'd have to live in this dual world of believing stuff that we never see. God's faithfulness is not dependent on ours. Now, that, it's important we hear this through because we can draw wrong conclusions at any point. How do we know that God's faithfulness is not dependent on ours? 
we'll read this book. From the very start in Genesis, you get God promising things. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned and messed up what God had given them, God gives them a promise. He promises the seed of the, the offspring of the woman is going to crush Satan's head. At that moment, they didn't know anything about offspring. They hadn't got any children. I don't know if they knew they were going to have children, but he gives this promise. The woman is going to have offspring, and the offspring of the woman will crush Satan's head. That's the first bit of promise. The promise then grows as you work through the Old Testament. More and more detail comes into it. And you begin to see more and more of what, what that promise was about. The offspring of the woman. A human is going to be, there's going to be someone who's a son, son of God, God with us. The servant of the Lord. who's going to be despised and rejected. God is going to put on him our iniquity through his suffering We are going to be redeemed. The story unfolds. The promised one is going to come. Now, did they believe it? Were they faithful? No. They didn't believe it. They heard the words. They didn't believe it. And so, when the promised one came, did they welcome him? This is the one we've been believing. No. He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him, it says in John chapter 1. They crucified him, killed him. They didn't believe. Were they faithful? No, they were not faithful. They were totally faithless. Was God faithful? Yes. The promise was fulfilled. They were faithless, but God kept his word. The promised one came in spite of... The unbelief of the people. And the wonder of God is he even used their unbelief to achieve his purpose. Their unbelief caused them to crucify God's Son. And that is the very means by which his promise was fulfilled. God's wonderful. He is faithful. We might not be, but he is. He keeps his word. We have the story here in Scripture. God's faithfulness is not dependent on ours. God does what he says he will do. God's plans are not vulnerable to a popular vote. God is faithful. Let God be true is the great statement. Does our unfaithfulness negate God's? No, not on your life. Let God be true. God's promises are not unreal. They're not up in pie in the sky. God's promises have been fulfilled and will be fulfilled. Then you might say, well, okay then. Does it not matter whether we believe? If God's promises are going to be fulfilled regardless of our unfaithfulness, well, hey, The Bible speaks about fighting the good fight of faith. Why bother? Let's just chill out and let's not struggle to believe God's going to do it anyway. Is that a conclusion? Well, it is a conclusion, but it's a wrong one. Our unbelief 
will not thwart God. Let's be absolutely clear on that. Our unbelief will not thwart God. He is not vulnerable. He is not dependent on us in any way whatsoever. He's the Lord. Our unbelief won't thwart him. But our unbelief could exclude us from what he wants to do. We could miss out. Those people who were faithless missed the promise. The promise came. They missed it. God is faithful. God will do what he said. God will build his church. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. All that the scripture says, those wonderful promises that we read that Jesus gave, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll do. That's true. Absolutely true. We could miss out. God will do it. At the appointed time, Jesus will come back and he will come for a glorious church and there will be a glorious church. Whether or not we're part of it, well, that's a matter of our faith. It's a matter of our faithfulness. But God will be faithful. He will do what he said he will do. This world will not go on forever. God has appointed a time when he's going to judge the world. He has appointed a time when Jesus is coming back, and that will happen. And he will send his angels to the four corners of the earth. They will gather his chosen people and they will be forever with the Lord. God will do that. It's not dependent on us. And we can't delay it. And we can't thwart it. God will do it. The issue is, are we in it? Are we part of it? Now that is a matter of our faith. That is a matter of us believing God receiving his word, committing ourselves to it. Our unbelief doesn't thwart him. God is faithful. Let God be true. It's as if it's, even though everyone else isn't, even though everyone else is a liar, God is true. God is always right. He, Paul goes on to say, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak, and prevail when you judge. He's quoting there from Psalm 51. If you know your Old Testament, you know that Psalm 51, the very solemn psalm, it's a psalm that David composed after he'd been confronted with his sin. He had done something terrible. He was the king, and he had misused his authority to take someone else's wife to himself and to get her husband killed. He thought he'd got away with it. Maybe he thought, as the king, he could do what he liked. As the king, he might think he's always right, because no one would dare confront him. He has total authority. He can arrange for someone to be killed. He can take that woman. Who is going to stand in his way? He's the king. God has anointed him as king. No one dare confront him. He's always right. And then the prophet comes and confronts him with his sin. And his confession is, oh God, you're right. You're right. And I am wrong. You are proved right when you speak. And you prevail when you judge. God is true. God is true in his promises. And God is true in his judgments. 
God is true in his promises. All his promises will be fulfilled. And he's true in his judgments. David recognized that. Had nowhere to go. No no other argument. God is true. And he says, I've sinned. And the day will come when everyone is going to actually acknowledge that same thing. It's true in his judgments. No room to wriggle. No room to get out of it. Nowhere to hide. Nothing to debate. God will speak. It's true. Goes on to say, so that every mouth may be silenced, the whole world held accountable to God. That day will come. No one will have anything else to say. God's true. It's true in his promises. Absolutely faithful. And it's true in his judgments. God is always right. People who don't understand that will dare sometimes to criticize God. In their little understanding, this, this, and this ought to have happened, and it didn't happen, and how dare God fail in that way? And they shake their little fist in God's face as if I'm right and he's wrong. He is always right. Because he is what right is. (laughs) Right is God, and God is right. If our little understanding thinks he got it wrong, it means we just do not understand. How dare we, how dare we ever criticize Almighty God? He is right. Whatever happens in our lives, He is right. One of the wonderful things, and I've referred to the fact that I've been reading, studying recently the book of Job, and one of the wonderful things with that guy Job, when everything collapses, everything goes wrong, but he will not accuse God. His wife says, curse God and die. No, he's not going to. God is right. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. What a wonderful response. God is always right. His promises are true. His judgments are true. He fulfills his promises. How he fulfills his promises is his decision. The timing of the fulfillment of his promises is his decision. He's right. But every promise is sure. So what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Paul raises the question, if being a Jew doesn't save, circumcision doesn't save, what's the point? Well, the great privilege is they have the word of God. But then... Further question, the word of God doesn't seem to have helped them much. They still crucified the Messiah. Is the word of God to be trusted then, or is it conditional? Is it hedged around with ifs and buts? All these conditions, all the small prints. Can we really trust God? Do you need a, a PhD if you're going to read the Bible to think, oh, yes, I, I now see, yes, it doesn't mean quite what it appears to mean. Can you believe it? Is it true? Is everything hedged around with conditions? Let God be true. And every man alive. God is faithful. His word is true. God's word is our privileged possession, our prize. It's entrusted to us. We read it. We hear it. And we believe it. In the face of whatever evidence, let God be true. 
We believe it in the face of disappointment. We believe it in the midst of fear, in the midst of conflicts, in the midst of confusion, whatever. God is true. And God is looking for a people who understand that. People who are not just looking all the time at the evidence and looking at the difficulties and looking at the problems to see whether you can really believe this or that. God is right. And what he says is right. And what he says in promising is true. What he says in judgment is true. What advantage then? Well, the word of God and the word of God is totally reliable. And that's our great advantage. What advantage? could say, what advantage is there in being brought up in a Christian home? It doesn't save you. If you've grown up with Christian parents, you still need to be saved. Or what's the great privilege? Well, you've had the word of God since you were a baby. You've had God's word entrusted to you through all those years. It hasn't saved you. But what a privilege, what a privilege, what a privilege for children here to be hearing bits and pieces of God's word. They're getting hold of stuff, and they do. We know that that from kids' call. It's wonderful how much they understand, because they're far more intelligent than parents think. (laughs) Wonderful. What a privilege. And it's enough to lead us to salvation. We need to believe. We need to come to faith in God. But God's word, great privilege and totally true. God is right. God is true. His promises are reliable. Now, I've had a word about standing on a threshold. If we stand on a threshold, what are we going forward into? Not into unreality. Not into the double think of believing stuff up there that doesn't hit planet Earth. But surely the threshold is to go forward into saying, we believe God. And we're stepping out on that. We're not waiting to see what God will do. We are believing him. And the first law of faith is action. We're going to move on what God says. We will pray for the sick. We will see people healed. We will preach the gospel. We will see people saved. Because God is true. We're not going to look at statistics. We're not going to look. We're saying God is true. Let every man be a liar, but God is true. Is that your conviction? Do you honor God by crediting him with being reliable? He doesn't say things to confuse us, doesn't say things just to comfort us. It's true, absolutely true.